This is The Other Side Australia with Damien Curry. The new podcast for the quiet Australians. G'day and welcome to this very special edition of The Other Side Australia. It's our first for 2021. So happy new year to everybody. Looking forward to a great year of fun and games. Hasn't it been interesting? We thought we were going to come back on Friday the 15th, this coming Friday, but uh, we've decided to do an extra episode this week and start a little early because of what's been going on. Uh, I did see a very funny meme this morning. Somebody posted uh, online about uh, how they really... um, you know, have enjoyed the seven-day introductory sample to 2021, uh, but they've decided not to subscribe and would like their money back. Um, it has been that sort of year so far, uh, with so much going on in the United States with the Capitol building riots and also uh, here in Australia with the Brisbane lockdown and uh, other border closures around the country and the Premier's moving on COVID and there's a lot of concern and uh, discontent. I thought it was really important that we did an early episode. Um, so I'm very, very excited to say that we'll be having Matthew Wong on the show today. Matthew's the host and founder of The People's Project, the podcast that uh, is a counter to uh, the very left-leaning uh, Network 10 CBS uh, program, The Project, uh, which um, is a fantastic podcast, by the way, if you get a chance to, to watch Matthew and Josh. Uh, Matthew also does a range of other sorts of shows, long-form interview shows. I've appeared on Matthew's shows and I thought it would be great to have him on the other side to help me work through uh, some of these things that have been going on uh, here at home and uh, we'll be discussing also uh, what's happening in the United States. First of all, though, uh, I'd like to do a segment on the Capitol uh, riot situation the other day. Um, So we'll do that. That'll be the first 10 minutes of the show. And then we'll move into our interview with Matthew, which is about um, 45 minutes or so. So it's a bit of a long one, but uh, sit back and enjoy the ride. Bit of a holiday edition, a bit looser than usual. Um, And I apologise if the sound quality is not quite our usual standard. I'm on holidays, didn't expect to be doing this episode and didn't bring the the big black microphone. So I am uh, basically... Uh, using uh, not a studio environment for this, so hopefully the sound will be okay, but I apologise that it's not up to our usual standard. Now, this program is pretty open and honest about its editorial stance. We tend to take a politically centre-right position on things, and we strongly promote classical liberalism as an ideological stance, that free people with free expression and free markets lead to the best outcomes for all. And there needs to be some government. We're not libertarian in the sense, but we believe the government needs to be very small and to take a laissez-faire approach in order for a society to prosper and get the best outcomes for everybody. I started this show five months ago because I feel that the rise of the left and leftist ideas of big intrusive government have so far this century tended to dominate our culture and public discourse in Australia. I think we have a serious fight on our hands to protect freedom in Western culture. COVID has delivered a severe blow to our freedoms. A pandemic is the biggest threat you can get when it comes to individual liberties because it demands a temporary setting aside of freedoms for the wider public good. And that's something we must be very careful of doing too hastily. And we haven't been too careful at all in this country. Quite the opposite. 
So I've mostly been a defender of the political parties that traditionally support small government, small business, innovation, job creation, freedom, free markets, and freedom of speech, the Liberal Party in Australia and the Republican Party in the US. And I've refrained, refrained from joining what I think has been a childish and oversimplistic, endless ridiculing of Donald Trump since the day he said he was going to run for president in 2015. I think the mainstream media coverage of the election campaign in the US was heavily biased against Trump and the Republican Party. The media deliberately ignored very serious and valid allegations against Joe Biden while amplifying the slightest allegation against Trump. I think the Democrats did more damage to the institutions of the United States and bipartisan goodwill than Trump ever did, with their relentless pursuit of power through the flimsy claims of Russia collusion, which were frankly a bit ridiculous and based on very sketchy evidence. And then we had the impeachment, and I watched a lot of that on live TV. And at the end of the day, it was really nothing more than a circus and a witch hunt aimed at taking the spotlight off the very concerning activities of the Biden family in Ukraine, and instead shining it onto Trump's phone call with the Ukrainian president as a diversion tactic. It became an inquiry into the management quality of the Trump administration in respect of the State Department. And it was a harsh critique. Maybe some, some ways it was a valid critique. But it fell way short of a credible investigation into any serious wrongdoing worthy of impeachment. Worst of all, I think CNN, NBC, CBS, The Washington Post and The New York Times stopped behaving as the balanced news organisations of quality they once were and became non-stop critic machines of the Trump administration in a way that I reckon went way beyond the normal healthy criticism of government and bringing of truth to power that journalists should strive for. And I think the endless pop culture and social media attacks on Trump and his supporters did more to divide America into two halves than anything Trump said or did. Stephen Colbert stopped being funny for me around 2017, as did late night TV in America generally. You know, while it's fun to hang with the cool kids and laugh along with their smirking, condescending, patronising ridiculing of Trump, we've got to remember that ridicule extends to the half of the country that supported him. I saw it as a bit elitist after a while, snobbish and intellectually pretty lazy and oversimplistic. When you poke fun at Trump, you're poking fun at the working class hero who wonders where all the jobs have gone, the lover of liberty and human rights who wonders why America was doing so much business with a communist regime in China, the mums and dads who work like dogs to be good citizens and take care of their kids and wonder why they're being demonised because they don't buy into the identity politics idea that just because they're white, they carry some kind of guilt by birth. The conservative African-Americans who question the victimhood ideology that's so popular among the chattering elites. And the immigrants who settled in America legally, who actually don't want open borders for queue jumpers. These people saw Trump as a hope that their voice, their views, might finally be heard in Washington. The alternative for them in 2016 was a politically opportunistic woman who just derided them as 
deplorables. Trump did not get a fair go during his presidency, like him or not. He did not get fair coverage in the election campaign. He had every right not to concede and to challenge the legitimacy of the election through the court process, given that this was an unprecedented election with an unprecedented number of mail-in ballots, which are much more open to fraud. But in the end, he lost. He was not able to prove fraud in the courts. 62 legal challenges failed. Many of them were heard before Republican judges. Many of them were appointed by Trump himself. And to cement the loss and change of mood, in Georgia this week, the Republicans narrowly lost both of their Senate seats. There was a special Senate runoff election for the two Senate seats in Georgia, and they lost both of them. They were both held by Republicans. Each state gets two Senate seats, and now Georgia has two new Democrat senators. This is big because it hands control of the Senate to the Democrats with a 50-50 tie. The new vice president, Kamala Harris, will have the deciding vote in the Senate, as is the convention. So now the Democrats control the Senate, they control the House of Representatives, that's the two houses of the Congress, and they control the executive, the presidency, the White House. That is something that hasn't happened for, I think, more than 100 years for the Democrats. So it's going to be a very interesting ride for the next two years at least until the next half, uh, the, 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 uh, sorry, the next midterm election. Now, while I sympathise with the 75 million people who voted for Trump and or the Republican Party, they've been greatly let down by the few hundred who stormed the Capitol building in Washington this week. This was the action of people, some people, who think that the best way to do politics is with physical violence. No, we don't do that in the civilised world, folks. We debate in public. We elect representatives and they make and change the laws on our behalf. No one small group gets to decide how it's going to be for everyone else. It's called democracy and it needs to be defended. There's not one rule for Black Lives Matter and one rule for radical Trump supporters. They are all rioters. And all of them, all people who use violence to express political ideas, need to be stopped. The leader of the Republican Party in the US Senate is Mitch McConnell. Before the rioters stormed the Capitol building, he'd already made his first remarks to the Senate about the calls for the election results to be overruled, in a sense, by the Congress. His words were important for conservatives and classical liberal centrists and a well worth listening to. So here's a long soundbite for you. You may have heard a bit of this on the mainstream media, but you don't get long enough to really get into the, the heart of the matter. So here's a nice long soundbite. Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican leader in the Senate. We're debating a step that has never been taken in American history. Whether Congress should overrule the voters and overturn a presidential election. I've served 36 years in the Senate. This will be the most important vote 
I've ever cast. President Trump claims the election was stolen. The assertions range from specific local allegations to constitutional arguments to sweeping conspiracy theories. I supported the president's right to use the legal system. Dozens of lawsuits received hearings in courtrooms all across our country. But over and over, the courts rejected these claims, including all-star judges whom the president himself has nominated. Every election, we know, features some illegality and irregularity, and of course, that's unacceptable. I support strong state-led voting reforms. Last year's bizarre pandemic procedures must not become the new norm. But my colleagues, nothing before us proves illegality anywhere near the massive scale, the massive scale that would have tipped the entire election. Nor can public doubt alone justify a radical break when the doubt itself was incited without any evidence. The Constitution gives us here in Congress a limited role. We cannot simply declare ourselves a national board of elections on steroids. The voters, the courts, and the states have all spoken. If we overrule them, it would damage our republic forever. This election actually was not unusually close. Just in recent history, 1976, 2000, and 2004 were all closer than this one. If this election were overturned by mere allegations from the losing side, our democracy would enter a death spiral. Every four years would be a scramble for power at any cost. We cannot keep drifting apart into two separate tribes with a separate set of facts and separate realities. With nothing in common except our hostility towards each other and mistrust for the few national institutions that we all still share. That was Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican leader in the Senate during the hearings Wednesday before the rioters stormed the building. Vice President Mike Pence also made a clean break with Trump early on Wednesday morning, making it very clear that he would not be intervening uh, and did not have the power to do so. There was another great speech from a lesser known younger senator, also a Republican, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass. Have a listen to this. When I came to the floor this morning, I planned to talk about uh, the lesson of 1801, because I'm kind of a history nerd. And I wanted to celebrate the glories of the peaceful transition of power across our nation's history. Feels a little naive now. 1801 blew everybody's mind all over the world, by the way. Uh, John Adams loses to Thomas Jefferson, and uh, 
Adams willingly leaves the executive mansion and moves back to Massachusetts, and Jefferson peacefully assumes power. And people all over Europe said, Those must be, that must be fake news. Those must be bad reports. There's no way any executive would ever willingly lay down power. And yet Adams, in defeat, did something glorious to give all of us a gift. I wanted to celebrate that, and it feels a little bit harder now. This building has been desecrated. Blood has been spilled in the hallways. This isn't what America is. What happened today isn't what America is. I don't think we want to tell the Americans that come after us that this republic is broken, that this is just a banana republic, that our institutions can't be trusted. I don't think we want that. We don't want that in this body. We don't want that in our hometowns. I don't think we want to tell our kids that America's best days are behind us because it's not true. That's not who we are. America isn't Hatfields and McCoys, blood feud forever. America's a union. There's a lot that's broken in this country, but not anything that's so big that the American people can't rebuild it, that freedom and community and entrepreneurial effort and that neighborhoods can't rebuild. Nothing that's broken is so big that we can't fix it. But the heart of America is not government. The center of America is not Washington, D.C. The center of America is the neighborhoods where 330 million Americans are raising their kids and trying to put food on the table and trying to love their neighbor. That's the center of America. We're not supposed to be the most important people in America. We're supposed to be servant leaders who try to maintain a framework for ordered liberty so that there's a structure that back home where they live, they can get from the silver frame of structure and order to the golden apple at the center, as Washington would have said it, which is the things that they build together the places where they coach Little League, the places where they invite people to synagogue or church. And we're supposed to serve them by maintaining order and by rejecting violence. You can't do big things like that if you hate your neighbors. You can't do big things together as Americans if you think other Americans are the enemy. Don't let the screamers who monetize hate have the final word. Don't let nihilists become your drug dealers. There are some who want to burn it all down. We met some of them today, but they aren't going to win. Don't let them be your prophets. Instead, organize, persuade, but most importantly, love your neighbor. Visit the widower down the street who's lonely and doesn't want to tell anybody that his wife died and he doesn't have a lot of friends. Shovel somebody's neighbor. Shovel somebody's driveway. You can't hate somebody who just shoveled your driveway. The heart of life is about community and neighborhood, and we're supposed to be servant leaders. The constitutional system is still the greatest order for any government ever, and it's our job to steward it and protect it. Let's remember that today when we vote. And that was Republican Nebraska Senator Ben Sass speaking there in the Senate on Wednesday. The banning of Trump for life by Twitter just announced today, and the banning of him on Facebook and Instagram at least temporarily, is a ridiculous partisan gross over-exaggeration that will only inflame more tensions and fuel conspiracy theories about big tech censorship. What is the difference between the silent dog-whistling incitement to violence that Trump did, if you believe that's what he did, and those like Kamala Harris and others who encouraged the BLM protesters to continue their campaign? Even, if it had, even after it had become extremely violent. And what good is this banning of Trump going to do to heal the divide and wounds of America? How does it show 
empathy to the ordinary disenfranchised Trump voters I spoke of earlier. It is such a bad move. And equally bad is the attempt to impeach Trump to prevent him ever running again, or to remove him early using Article 25 so late in the game. It's more theatrics from the Democrats, more divisive revenge, and it's got nothing to do with a true, sincere desire for empathy and healing. We're in for a very interesting four years. We are going to be back in a moment with Matthew Wong. I'm very excited to have Matthew on the show, uh, and he'll be joining us to discuss the COVID situation in Australia, the lockdowns, and we'll also talk a little bit about the Capitol building situation, covering a lot of stuff to sort of get us off on a nice philosophical start to 2021. It's uh, it's a long uh, chat, uh, covering a lot of ground. Hope you enjoy it. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're getting a little tediously bored, uh, don't, don't be afraid to use the two times or the 1.5 times speed or the just jump 10 minutes ahead and see if we're not talking about something a little bit more interesting. But uh, I didn't want to edit it too much. Um, it, is, it is a good chat. So uh, I thoroughly enjoyed having Matthew on the show. So I hope you enjoy it. This is The Other Side Australia with Damien Curry the new podcast for the quiet Australians. To help me sort of wade through everything that's going on, I'm very happy to have on the show Matthew Wong. Matthew uh, is the host of The People's Project uh, and a number of other uh, excellent uh, interview programs that come out of um, his company, Discernible. Matt, um, you're based in Melbourne. it's great to have you on my show. I've been on yours, so it's nice to nice to talk to you the other way around, so to speak. It's nice to be reminiscing my childhood. Let me do the childhood story. You know what I'm talking about. When I first met uh, you virtually on a panel, I thought, man, this this guy's voice is is quite uh, nice and soothing and comforting. And we discovered later that you were probably one of the newsreader journalists in my childhood. So it's probably a bit of nostalgia that I like your voice. Yeah, you know, I hate that story, man. That that's depressing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like to think of myself as a contemporary of yours, but the reality is that yeah, I'm probably uh, probably a hundred years older. But anyway, that's life. Um, so yeah, you're in Melbourne. Uh, I'm currently on the Gold Coast. I'm actually literally on the New South Wales Queensland border, uh, and uh, and my home is in Brisbane, which has now just gone under lockdown at fairly short notice. Um, these are these are weird times, are they not? I'd say it's a toss-up whether you go south into the welcoming arms of Gladys or you go back north and roll the dice. But, you know, uh, I don't buy the line people say 2020 is done and dusted. I think 2020 was the pre-show warm-up. 2021 is going to be at least equally as weird, if not worse. So, look, I, I feel sorry for you guys up there going through the mask mandates because it's worse than ours. They're, they're, literally, the government has come out and said in Queensland that you must wear a mask even when you're by yourself driving your car. 
Oh, my God. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing, isn't it? Um, Matt, before we get too much into COVID-19, tell me a little bit about your business, Discernible, and your main product, which is the People's Project podcast. So Discernible is a, a passion project of mine, and I've been creating content on their business videos for about a year, didn't get any traction. And then as soon as I started to try and help people with some of my legal background talking about uh, state of emergency bills and just the weird law stuff that's happening around COVID. Uh, some of my stuff went viral for the first time and I just found myself uh, being very suddenly helpful to a large group of people. People, So in that vein, I've tried to remain helpful. It's a completely passion-funded project. Basically, I'm spending a house deposit just to make this content because I feel like I'm helping the world. One day, maybe it'll become a full-time job. But uh, we ended up creating uh, a bunch of different shows. So I made an interview show, kind of like Joe Rogan, I guess, where I just interview a bunch of interesting people. A lot of pollies have come on, scientists. Uh. So I noticed that uh, the project on Channel 10 is absolute crap. Can I say crap on your show? I've said it twice now. Uh, absolutely, especially if you're talking about the project. <laughs> well, it's absolute rubbish. And so I, I decided to do a uh, something called Not The Project, which is now called The People's Project. And we do uh, a much better version of it. And it's quality of news programs nowadays is not so much about the set and the production values, though we do have very high production values. Uh, it's more about the, I find, the intellectual honesty. Because that's the problem with the project. It's not that they're hardcore left, although they are very left biased. I think it's more that when evidence presents itself to their hosts and to their guests, they intellectually close their eyes and are unwilling to look at both sides of an argument. And so on the People's Project, we try to uh, look at both sides to the point where we spun off another show about worldviews and, and uh, looking glass lenses and, and how you see the world. You know, we're really trying to understand how people see and perceive things that are happening in the world today and how we can be aware of that so that we're not uh, falling into logical fallacies and biases. Right. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think even worse than the project would be the drum for, uh, you know, people say to me, oh, but they give their time to conservative people. They give their time to, you know, uh, people with a you know more classical liberal worldview. Um, yes, I mean, the ABC does give airtime, but everything that we're consuming, uh, you know, through that show is, is through the lens of, uh, you know, a particular ideology, right? And and that ideology uh, is is a inherently biased one that's focused on uh, you know identity politics, uh, woke culture, if you like, um, which which has its history uh, and its its philosophical uh, um, background in sort of neo uh, well Marxism ultimately. Well, the, I mean proof proof. An example, proof in the pudding here is with the discernible interviews I do, uh, we have a disproportionately uh, large guest list in terms of the caliber of the guests coming on for the following that I have. Uh, you know, our biggest shows might go out to 80,000 people on a Friday night. That is small compared to the, the people we're getting on and, and the comments we're getting is, I'm not an expert at all, but they love the fact that uh, I'm willing to intellectually press an issue and explore it and have an open mind and so when we talk about bias on the drum and the project they and the abc they say but look we need more conservatives on you know this is the andrew bolt argument how many people have you got on left of center and right of center i don't think that's going to solve it 
because at the end of the day, it's the hosts and the producers that determine where you go, looking through what you just said, the ideology, the lenses, the way you frame questions, whether you investigate an issue or not, that's far more important to me than who you have on. And the questions you don't frame, the things you don't say, uh, the things you don't Mm -hmm. challenge, like, uh, you know, when you just sit and nod and, and agree with someone who's made a pretty, you know, pointed comment um, as if to sort of uh, just say, well, that is that is naturally and obviously the truth to anybody watching this show, and so we don't need to challenge that idea or, or discuss that at all. Um, it just becomes, you know, uh, frustrating to watch. And, I mean, the women hosting it, they're not your age, they're my age. I mean, I went to university mm-hmm. with one of them, um, and and it it it's I find it extremely irritating that that they're not um, at least asking the most basic sort of challenging questions. But anyway, well, with those people, I I wonder if oh just quickly I wonder if they it's not so much that they um, are biased. I wonder if they're not even examining intellectually examining those things within themselves to begin with. No, I, to- no, I totally I agree. Yeah. I don't think it's deliberate yeah. and conscious. I think it's entirely an unconscious process, and I think it comes from a culture of uh, of default. Because they, you know, you work at the ABC; that's the mentality, right? And everybody's. This is why I think we can't have an ABC that really isn't biased, because every organisation will have a culture, and so you're always going to have a slight bias to whatever that culture is. When people are hiring, uh, you're only going to hire. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't get a job at the ABC today, even though at 21 years of age, they, you know, I was. Uh, apparently good enough to read the news for Queensland. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be coming at me now saying, uh, come and join us, um, even though I've got 30 years more experience, you know, life experience. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's so they're only going to hire people like-minded people that are like them. And they're only going to sort of, or if you do happen to hire somebody who's of a right-wing persuasion, they're going to get swallowed up and eaten alive by the culture. Nobody wants to go to work every day and be the odd one out, not fit in be the person that's got to sort of constantly be challenging. I mean, it's intellectually exhausting and it would, would be emotionally distressing to do that every single day. So you're just going to wind up with that. This is the sort of vibe of the place. This is, you know, um, makes you realise how philosophical the castle was as a film, you know, because it really is just the vibe of the thing. Um, but it will end up like that. And, uh, you know, and that's what we've got. We've got an ABC with that particular culture. So, no, I don't, I don't, I agree with you. I don't think it's, it's conscious. Uh, it just surprises me that people my age um, wouldn't have a slightly broader perspective when they're interviewing people of your age who probably um, have the excuse of not yet having evolved their thinking fully. I guess I don't know. It just, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a weird thing to watch, and it's frustrating, of course, for us because uh, we're we're sort of out there doing our own thing um, and and paying for it ourselves um, in these shows that we do mm. because we care uh, and and yet they're swimming around in you know a billion dollars of government funding so you know that that I, I would be lying if I said I wasn't irritated or slightly envious about that I would just be, it'd be yeah and it will change Damien uh, if you look at new media and the rise of not just the big headline Joe Rogan Spotify deal but uh, money follows eyeballs and I think it's ludicrous that I, I'm seeing such large numbers watching my shows after a couple of months. So obviously the, the demand is there and I think the money the money will be there uh, as well eventually. 
Yeah, well, it would be it would be nice, not essential, but it would be nice. Um, all right, mate. Let's let's get on to the serious stuff. So, um, you know, we, we've seen in the last twenty four hours, uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk uh, in Queensland deciding to shut down Greater Brisbane, put Greater Brisbane into a lockdown, a pretty heavy lockdown, um, over one identified case of COVID nineteen. Just your thoughts on that initial. You know, First of all, keep keep in mind we're talking about a case, so we're not talking about. Uh, well, technically speaking, the professor of medical statistics at Cornell University I've had on my show has, has educated me on this. It's not actually a case; it's an infection. Anyway, uh, it goes infections, then cases, and then morbid outcomes after that. And so, basically, we're we're not even measuring someone who's sick. We're not measuring someone who's admitted to hospital. We're not measuring someone who's admitted to ICU or someone who has died. We are measuring someone who's had a positive test result. And, you know, we can, that's a whole nother podcast about those tests. But anyway, what is it? An, is it an asymptomatic test? Who knows? But they're shutting it down. And you've had nine new cases across Queensland. I think it was the yesterday or the day before. Yes. Yeah, it was yesterday. Uh, so to a total of 23 or 24. Uh, and one case in Brisbane with this apparently super mutant crazy strain from the UK. So you've locked down how many people in the in this lockdown is about two million, right? In Greater Greater Brisbane? Two point two point five million actually, I think, or two point two million. Two point two, yeah. This is the big debate that I think the centre majority in Australia, which we have a much larger centre swinging majority than in, say, the US, which is more divided. The centre majority is looking at this now and starting to say, Hey, I get it, I get it, I, I get COVID, you know, dangerous, blah, blah, blah. But uh proportionality, please. Do we really want to cause this much havoc and danger to to this many people? And, and look, this is you know to another two million people for for how many have died? I've got the stats in front of me right now from the Australian Government Department of Health. They produce a snapshot every day, and the current number of ICU cases, uh, COVID cases admitted to ICUs around the country. Do you know the numbers of these, Damien? You want to take a guess? Uh, current admitted cases in ICUs around Australia, God, it would be yep. single digits. It is single digits. Uh, let's start with the ACT, zero. Yeah. Uh, New South Wales, you'd, you'd assume a bit more, right? Two. New South, yep, New South Wales currently has zero. All right. Uh, North, uh, North, Northern Territory has zero. Uh, this is from health.gov.au, all right? Uh, South Australia has zero. TAS has zero. Western Australia has zero, but Mark McGowan's got some pretty crazy borders over there. That makes sense. Now, Victoria in Queensland, I've left to last. So Victoria at the moment has zero cases admitted into ICU with COVID. And lucky last, Queensland, where you're locking down, how many cases do you think you've got in the ICU? Zero. Zero. So the current number of cases, according to the Australian Government Department of Health, is zero cases have been admitted to ICU. So, you know, that's a bit silly that I just spent a minute to go through a bunch of zeros but to prove the point the way we perceive thanks to the media what is actually going on out there the fear and this is deadly and people are dying and yet the published government statistics right there are telling us a different story there's a disconnect between how we're feeling and behaving and and what the actual stats are saying yeah now i think we're witnessing a a, a really interesting cultural phenomenon or psychological phenomenon as well. Um, I mean, this is very, very fear-based, obviously. Uh, a little bit scary that people are jumping so quickly um, to responding to the fear the way they are. 
and even more frightening that our politicians are, um, are playing this game. Um, a lot of people believe that there's some dark global conspiracy behind all of this, which I uh, I completely reject that notion. Um, I, I just generally don't believe in conspiracy theories because I've worked in organisations and I find it, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, if you've worked in a big organisation, you know how hard it is to keep a secret, right? Mm -hmm. um, Very it's not, uh, try and keep a secret between uh, two organisations that like each other, let alone two organisations that hate each other, like the CIA and the FBI. I mean, you'd never be able to stop leaks and, and, and stuff getting out. So I just don't subscribe to to the conspiracy theories. And I think that's another separate phenomenon that's occurring that's kind of a bit weird in itself. Um, but that's why I said to you off air, uh, we, we ascribe malevolence where incompetence will do when it comes to government. So most conspiracy theories can be explained by stupidity and incompetence. That's right. And I think that's what we're really seeing here. I don't, I mean, I think there, there's obviously opportunistic power grab type behavior that we saw, especially with Anastasia Palaszczuk prior to the Queensland election. I mean, she, mm. she was very politically opportunistic um, with the way that she managed things. Um, and, and we're seeing that, of course, with, I guess, your premier as well, yeah. We are. I feel bad though that I've just said a bunch of zeros. Uh, I should, for the people out there who like to be scared a little bit, I'll give them a bit of fear. How's this? The current number of cases admitted to hospitals throughout Australia is 37, and that's zero in Victoria, one in New South Wales, and 18 in Queensland, and then you know 17 in Northern Territory and whatever. But so you do have 18 people in hospital with COVID at the moment in Queensland. So there is that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think that the, the question really is proportionality, as you said. Um, and I don't believe that shutting down an entire city and depriving people of their liberty is a step that you take uh, lightly. And mm -hmm. we can't do it on the basis mm -hmm. that, you know, a certain number of deaths may occur even. I mean, mm -hmm. you, it's, it's a massive decision to do mm -hmm. this. And that's what concerns me. The fact that people are looking at one variable, one thing that they're afraid of, and they're not considering all of the other variables and and failing to kind of realize that risk management, really good risk management, is about making sensible, balanced decisions. Um, it's not about looking at one variable or metric and, and making decisions based in isolation with, you've got to consider all of the unintended consequences um, and, and you've got to look at the actual intent, actual consequences that you can see that will happen as a result of of, uh, of this kind of extreme public policy measure, right? Well, do you, do you recall when Dan Andrews down here in Victoria, our premier, he stood up on, I think it was a Saturday or a Sunday, and he said, we're closing our borders as of Monday night at midnight. And if you don't get back home, uh, then that's it. You can't get in. You have to go through hotel quarantine. You have to get exemption permits. And so what has ended up happening is he sparked, much like Trump sparked a, a capital, everyone come down to the capital. Dan Andrews sparked a massive motorcade convoy. Everyone started screaming home. Uh, stories of people uh, putting their uh, putting their wife and children on the planes and then driving uh, 20 hours straight and not stopping because they had to get through these, this border. 
these are the unintended consequences that we're talking about. <clears throat> and when it comes to proportion... And the consequences that shouldn't be obvious. I mean, last yesterday we had the mass exodus from Brisbane. Um, people just bolting for their holiday homes. Um, like you? Yeah. No, well, we were already on holiday down the Gold Coast, so I didn't have to move. But... Um, you know, there were there was the, the the highway to the Sunshine Coast out of Brisbane and north, and then the highway to the Gold Coast south, were absolutely gridlocked, bumper to bumper, mm. uh, last night. So you know, this is the that that she couldn't see the cause that that that's going to be a spreading event, right? <laughs> In any case, if you're trying to contain something, mm. um, you know, that's that's not not the right way to go about it and uh yeah i just i, I find it um it's like they're either shutting down entire states uh so the people of north queensland of course suffer from all of this um they got nothing to do with it they're totally there could be a separate state you know geographically anyway and 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 they've got to you know when they do statewide closures uh, it just becomes absurd i know somebody who's on a mine site and there's yeah. no workers on the mine site because currently things are not operational. And uh, they've been told they have to wear, and this is just a corporate directive, but they've been told yeah. they have to wear masks yeah. when they're outside their, their mine, the dongers, the mine accommodation. So it's like you're walking around this, you couldn't be in a more remote location anywhere in Australia, you know, not another human for a, uh, miles. And, um, you know, you've got to put a mask on uh, you know, so you get these crazy sort of problems when you say, well, we're just going to apply this to a whole state, to mm. a political jurisdiction. And then we talk about bubbles. Um, and the problem with bubbles is this, you know, you get these kind of people escaping the bubble, um, which they have every right to do, in my opinion. I don't think, um, you know, that this is a, this is necessarily a bad thing because I, I think the lockdown's wrong. Um, mm. But... Uh, you know, it, it is it is amazing to me that these very obvious kind of behaviours that are going to occur uh, after you announce something like that haven't even been thought through. Like, at what level of management are we dealing with here? You know, are we really... Um, I think it was um, an editorial. I've got it here the, uh, from um, Janet Albrickson in The Australian. Mm -hmm. um, and she says uh, in the last paragraph, sadly, National Cabinet may become a showcase for Morrison's governing skills, where he is slated as more middle management than leader. Mm. That's exactly what's happening, because he seems to back the premiers. That's all he does. He came out in rubber stamp stuff. Yeah. Well, I think I tweeted the other day, you know, he, he comes out and he, he made a statement yesterday in his press conference where he said, you know, it was very amicable. We're all sitting around. We're all working together. We're all agreeing. And and I, I, I sent a note saying, hey, hang on. <laughs> uh, I don't want an agreeable national cabinet thanks mm. um i want conflict in the national cabinet that that's that's how you avoid in management training one of the first things you learn is the danger of groupthink. the fact that if you're all sitting around a table and everybody just wants to agree with each other and be nice the human tendency is to want to be collegiate and, and nice and not to have conflict so you actually have to stimulate debate and conflict otherwise you wind up with terrible decision making well we do have that literally you know we're not just two guys ranting on about bad decision making corporate they're, let me tell you a story about how Wu. how Wu is a and his wife Le Shen. they're 36 years old they have a daughter named ella who's eight years old they moved they lived in Parramatta in sydney and they moved out uh having signed a lease for a property in my suburb here in melbourne 
and because they got a new job down here in Melbourne, but because of the border lockdown, they can't get here. They're currently paying a lease for a home they can't live in. They're sleeping on a couch at a friend's place in Sydney. They have put in for a permit exemption to get into Victoria, but there's more than 3,000 people waiting for Victoria to go through these permit exemptions to get in. So we have a humanitarian crisis on our hands. For the first time in Australian history, we have people internally displaced within our country, unable to get home. That's crazy. Well, it's it's just immoral. It's immoral, and, it, and I'm pretty sure it is illegal. Um, you know, we spoke to a um, constitutional expert on, I think, episode four of The Other Side of Australia, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Gillian Dempsey. And, um, you know, the reality is that the federal government does have the power to pass any kind of law through parliament, provided it goes, you know, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, it's the, par- the power is legally vested in the parliament. It's not vested in Scott Morrison as an individual. Mm-hmm. But as the Prime Minister, obviously, and having the majority, they can pass any law they like. If they pass a law and a state has a contradictory law, the the federal law overrides the state law. Uh, well, the Constitution says that the federal law will prevail to the extent of the inconsistency. That's correct. However, there are, there are a lot of limitations in the Constitution on what... Uh, the jurisdiction of of the federal law. So it is more difficult for the Commonwealth to make a federal law for, say, health, which is clearly laid out as a state responsibility, constitutionally speaking. But your your constitutional law expert would have pointed out simply Section 92 of the Constitution, which forbids this closing of borders. It says um, trade, commerce and intercourse between the states shall remain absolutely free. But the unfortunate thing is we had a high court challenge to that, which was thrown out uh, what a couple of mo- a month or two ago now. So the judiciary is at the moment not coming through on this, or maybe the lawyers are not putting up the right questions. But certainly, um, yeah, it's looking very unconstitutional what's happening at the moment. And that's where you need political pressure from people like Scott Morrison, who should be saying, look, does Section 92 of the Constitution apply or are we not doing that anymore? A little glib statement like that uh, could really put some pressure on. But at the moment, we're getting middle management uh, and we're getting our country seems to be turning into a a bickering war of, of premiers. Yes, and it's and it's also a lot of, so it's a lot of politics and it's also a lot of petty bureaucracy. Uh, we're in trouble. I mean, this is serious stuff. If we don't really sort of sort this out, um, you know, I, I mean, there is there's massive implications here for uh, the the private sector side of Australia. Um, dare I dare I mention you know business? Um, I, I had a, a one of my favourite relatives the other day. Uh, cannot she still can't get past this dichotomy that that, that there's uh, you know health and the economy like they're two separate mm-hmm. entities. Um, and I think a lot of people still think like that, right? Um, and this mm-hmm. is part of the problem. Uh, you know, the economy is people. The economy is mm-hmm. your health mm-hmm. uh, of your nation. It's the way you use your resources. It's the way you allocate your resources, and it's the amount of resources that you have available to allocate. If you have no economy, uh, if you have no value creation, then you have, you know, you you, you have less to allocate, less to to share, um, and and your health services are going to suffer and people are going to die. That's the reality. If there are no jobs, people are going to die. Um, and I, I think we, we're not even having that conversation quite enough, I don't think. 
Um, there are some coming out trying, like Gigi Foster, who was on Q and A and has appeared on Channel Seven or Nine, and uh, Sanjeev Sublock, the economist uh, who retired, who retired in protest from the um, Department of Treasury and Finance in Victoria. I've been surprised by the economists I interview on my show. I think I've had four now, and one of them is from from Brisbane, Gene Tunney. They are some of the most empathetic and sympathetic people that I've spoken to because they've been teaching me that. It, economists their goal is not money that's not an economist the study of economy is not we mistake corporate pursuit capitalism and corporate pursuit of wealth as economists but an economist's goal is to maximize human aggregate welfare so it they're, they're actually trying to make life better for people and measuring it and yeah as i said we we mistake well, I, I that we should, economics should be a basic uh, core subject in our high school curriculum frankly basic economics because it's just people's understanding of what it's about and what you know it is it's about resources and allocation of resources and how do we do that in the most effective way and the most effective way uh proven time and time again is free markets um, and and maximum liberty, um, because liberty uh, doesn't stifle human creativity and human ingenuity, and it it results in greater value creation across the whole community. Um, and you can't distribute wealth you don't have. Uh, so yeah, we need we need to get our kid. I think our whole uh, you know. We've got a generation who who just don't get why Australia is wealthy uh, because they're detached from it and they assume the whole world is, you know, I know they know the whole world's not wealthy, but they kind of assume that the whole world is, um, or that Australia is the norm. Uh, mm. No, Game of Thrones is the norm. It's that's true. human. <laughs> that's what the world's like without rules and laws and, uh, you know, uh, healthy economies and, and freedom. Um we live in a unique time with an amazing uh, system in, and it, and it really didn't come out of nowhere. You know, it came out of, um, uh, you know, Western, um, free market, liberal, democratic thought. Um, anyway, we could go on for hours and I could get in, into China and all sorts of uh, uh, things here. So we probably, probably should stay on topic, Matt. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> but but uh, you know this 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 I just finishing off that thought. I mean the idea of economy, uh, you know, and money being the enemy. I would even go so far as to say that the capitalist motive of profit is a very important part of what drives in that innovation and that wealth creation. And so the mm. capitalist motive of profit gets a really bad rap as well. Um, but you know I think that might be a bit too much for some people to swallow. <laughs> Well, I think it's because people feel, especially on the left, and this is one of my missions, is to bring a bit more compassion to the right wing. They feel like the left feels like uh, we are overlooking the, uh, you know, the the inequalities that result from that pursuit of profit. But they don't make distinction distinction between the pursuit of profit at the small end, you and me trying to have a better life for our family, from the pursuit of profit in the corporate end where you have crony capitalism and really the distinction shouldn't be between left and right it should be between up and down on, on a matrix between authoritarian and laissez-faire and unfortunately every solution that they're suggesting right from the great reset which you and i have done some podcast on uh the 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 tools they're suggesting to fix inequality are only going to increase it because it centralizes power anyway that's getting into a whole nother thing yeah, no, but I, I think it's important. Look, I think it's important because I think what's behind all of this, uh, 
you know, there is this kind of thing in Australia of, of um, you know, corporations are evil and money is evil and, uh, you know, government is good. And I think the problem we've got is that mindset of government is good. Australians have never known horrible, evil government. And, you know, we've had bad government, but we've never had evil government. And uh, they don't, therefore, have a reference point for, like, people in Hong Kong, where I, where I lived for, you know, 15 years, 16 years, mm -hmm. uh, have a very strong reference point for what bad government, evil government, looks like. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a different mindset there. You know, the government starts to take away your, your, your powers and, and people hit the streets. Uh, in Australia, the government uh, is, is invited, you know, to take away mm -hmm. your freedom, uh, to keep you safe, to protect us. If I hear someone say Anastasia kept us safe, one more time, <laughs> like, what, from what? What did she keep us safe from? COVID, come on. Hey, well, look, let's wave the flag for how to actually get through to an Australian because if you look at the protests that we, we were trying to get people to stand up in here in Melbourne to simple things like going back to work and they wouldn't do it. But as soon as the, um, the weather got hot, and they wanted to go to the beach and not wear a mask, you couldn't stop them. We had St Kilda Beach full and it was all in the news. If you look at people in Queensland panic buying right now, uh, you were told not, not to panic buy and yet you are and you've got a bunch of restrictions on goods that we never had in Melbourne. You know, you can only have two trays of mints and chicken thighs and whatever, not just toilet paper. The people, when you start to rattle their everyday lives, uh, they don't trust the government because your chief health officer, your chief medical officer, she's come out and said, you don't need to panic buy it because this lockdown is only going to be three days and you can get supplies after the lockdown. And everyone up there is called BS. No way this is just, even if, come on, we've seen this happen in Melbourne. They extend it, they extend it. So whether it gets extended or not is besides the point. We don't trust you and we're going to panic buy right now. So I wonder if maybe we need to really contextualize these topics we're talking about and make it matter to people's lives and then they might get interested so here in melbourne we started to say things like uh instead of saying look it's your right to peaceably assemble you know the government can't stop you from protesting that's who cares we started to say hey how are you going to feed your kids open your restaurant we'll come and buy dinner from you like just go about your life yeah yeah that's right how are you going to feed your kids um, and I think those, when it starts to really hit and hurt, and that's a part of the reason why I think Anastasia Palaszczuk got re-elected, because I think there was no pain felt, because mm. ironically, the federal government did what I guess it had to do. It cushioned the economic blow, of course, uh, with mm. JobSeeker, with JobKeeper. And so some people, uh, I have to admit, were probably quite enjoying the, the, the time off work. And there was a lot of support for... Um, for the lockdowns because it wasn't um, the inconvenience didn't outweigh or the, the the hurt wasn't being felt enough well can i ask you a question damien do you think rather than fighting for an alternative government or getting people to because obviously they're voting in dan andrews with the thumping majority if he was an election today he'd get in for sure anastasia got back in jacinda gets in joe biden is voted in um it looks like even if there was fraud there wasn't enough there's a lot of people who love joe biden and his policies and president kamala harris uh maybe we need to uh fight more on a different on a cultural ground you know rather than trying to fight politically because at the moment, I feel like the politicians are 
are winning. Well, and it's very hard. Look, when you're when you're fighting politically, you're fighting at the back end, right? I mean, it's the, it's the as you say, politics downstream of culture. Um, it, it, when you get into power, well, what are you going to do if you want to stay in power? You know, mm-hmm. you're going to do what ScoMo's doing. I mean, everybody on the mm-hmm. right in the Liberal Party is screaming about ScoMo being spineless. Mm-hmm. Um, but how can you have a spine with an Australian public that will? Uh, you know, sort of reject you. Um, and I, I don't, I had a friend in Japan who's Australian from Brisbane. He just cannot believe what's going on. I mean, the people overseas looking down what we're doing and just, I mean, the feedback I'm getting from expats and things is just, well, it varies from outrage to the fact that they can't come home as Australians, yeah. um, which I think is abhorrent. Um, right. But also, um, they're, they're just looking at going, what, who is running this place? I mean, it's it's absurd, you know. And, and there's no question in their mind that it's absurd. But if you get online and you look at social media, then it's just constant, you know, good on you, Anastasia, you're keeping us safe. Good on you, Dan. We love Dan, you know. Mm. Uh, and Mark McGowan, I mean, God, mm. you know, I mean, that, is just, that man is, is way out there. Um, but, um, you know, the, so, so the, my, my friend in, in, uh, in Tokyo, uh, is just mortified at, at what's going on here. Um, and he can't can't believe that we would we would be like that. So he's gone to the point now where he says, you know, it's not the politicians, it's not the leaders, mm, it's the it's people us. of Australia. And he's reversed yeah. his intention to come home. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh it's it's very strange. And, and I think you're hundred percent right. I think the focus has to be on education and has to be on the ABC. And that's why I believed mm. that the first thing that the Morrison government should have done was do its ABC reform because these cultural drivers, these drivers of public debate, by what they cover and what they don't cover, <coughs> by the questions they ask and the questions they don't ask, really do um, shape our culture. Anyway, um, so we, look, this is going to be a long episode of The Other Side of Australia after all. I thought it might be a short one, but there you go. Um, <laughs> hope we're not... We're not uh, putting people to, to to sleep with our philosophical pontificating, but um, I know, told you at the beginning of the podcast, I'll listen to your voice as I drift off to sleep. Yeah, that's problematic for me. <laughs> <laughs> not because you're listening to, it, because people are dripping off to sleep. It makes me um, feel like I'm back in the womb. Oh, thanks, mate. That's great. <laughs> just, it's, can we stop with the age difference thing? You, you're really freaking me out. Um, all right. So, look, I think we've you know, just summarised, you know, public health policy has got to be considering um, the vulnerable, the at-risk, the immobile, the isolated, this idea that it's only three days, you know. Um, you know, that's not much helpful if tomorrow happens to be your wedding day or you've had a mm-hmm. relative pass away and you're going to have the funeral or there's some crisis going on in your life or you've got to work, you know, simple as that. Um, and I think, you know... <laughs> wider public policy, this failure that we've got. Um, Anastasia Palaszczuk has said time and time again that she will follow whatever the chief health or chief medical officer says. Mm. Now, that sounds nice on face value, but that is absolute abdication of responsibility as a leader because in crisis management, your role is to bring together all of the experts the ex- and make a decision with the broader implications um taken into consideration. So you have to listen to everybody and you have to weigh it all up because your experts have to focus on their area, right? So your chief medical officer has to be singularly focused on the health risks. 
mm. related to the virus and the spread of the virus. In turn, the people that report to them who are epidemiology specialists have to be singularly focused on the spread of the virus. Mm -hmm. And then you take that advice as a leader and you balance that across all the other areas of your responsibility. That's the role of a crisis leader. If you just listen to the person who is giving you one vein of information and you're making all your decisions on that, or worse, you're abdicating your responsibility as a leader to that person, then you're going to wind up with dreadful, woeful results and policy. Um, and, and people will die and people will suffer. And that's what we've got. That's what's happening. Um, so, you know, put aside, I mean, that's one problem. One problem is just lousy management. I think the other problem is that we seem to be being over-governed by people on both sides of politics who don't respect civil liberties and who've forgotten that the words, it's for the common good, um, in history have sometimes led to tyranny. You know, we'll, we'll do this for the common good. I mean, that's how Stalin got things done. Uh, and he ended up murdering tens of millions of his own people. Um, we don't seem to have people who have the smarts for nuanced, balanced decision-making and good coordination of response. And not all of us as Australians, although perhaps as we've just discussed, it's it's too many of us, um, want government to be managing our lives and, you know, in quote, keeping us safe uh, to this extent, right? We are in a unique uh, window of time, though, Damien, because we, if you believe the theories, the broader theories that we are losing our brief moment of democracy over the past hundred year, two hundred years, uh, we still we still have it. So if you look at the way big tech and the authoritarians and the establishment elite and the industrial military complex and all you know all the people who just want everything to roll on as per normal and are concentrating the great reset people, that they are behaving in a panicked way the way that uh people are responding to trumpism not necessarily trump but but just the populist movement in the u.s the way they're responding to anyone who rebels and doesn't fall into line smells to me like panic and when people are panicking if big tech is panicking to censor people like youtube saying you can't even put out a video now uh saying there may have been widespread fraud in the election or just get deleted automatically uh that says to me we still have power that there's a moment in time now where the people can say hey uh politicians should be scared of us uh, we should not be scared of them and we may still be able to create something new out the other end of this so at the risk of of uh of pushing my own great reset <laughs> i think we should i was going to say build back better but you'll get crucified i think we should come out from this uh and make sure that we don't we, we can't afford to return to how it was because the, the left will simply point to the same old injustices and inequalities and so on. But we also can't afford to allow this new technocracy to take over where they control everything. We, we need to have an alternative. And I haven't seen anyone yet come out and, and offer that alternative. I see the hardcore authoritarians saying we need to do the Great Reset. I see the libertarians coming out on the other side saying, no, 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 it's, it's not, not right. Where's that? third person giving a credible alternative coming up the center i'd love to see that centrist person rise up well it's supposed to be you know the party of small business which is supposed to be the liberal party um but it's not happening so i don't know not happening yet um yeah we need to not build back better we need to build back freer 
Mm. Which yeah. um, oh. brings us to the United States of America, my friend. What what was your take on uh, all of the drama we saw in the Capitol? I, I hope you enjoyed that segue. Uh, I the um, I put out a I love emergency a smooth thing. Yeah, well, that's Thanks why for I killing started my talking. smooth segue. By the way, that's good. <laughs> no, I'm taking credit for it. You know, uh, the emergency episode you're putting out today. I put out one yesterday because of the capital thing, and I played a clip that was not shown. There, there was some violence. There was some bad actors, of course. But I wanted to show a bit more of the rich tapestry of reality, which is mainstream media's outlets don't show i showed a video last night on the people's project which you can see on youtube facebook whatever instagram uh of rioters outside the capitol front door before they got in and there was a there was a single guy with with black bandana on or something and he was trying to smash a window and uh, the people in the red hats mega hats were saying no antifa no antifa no antifa which yes uh, and then later on in the clip, I just showed the later part. They said Antifa, Antifa, trying to point out that he's from Antifa. Then a big guy in a red MAGA hat grabs him, pulls him down to prevent him from breaking in that window. And the crowd cheers. The crowd cheers. So here we have hundreds of people, at least. In, there was thousands of people there. But in this frame, there were hundreds of people cheering as they stopped violence happening. And they're calling Antifa out. So... There, the the full story of what happened, as always, is richer and more complex, and and it's a big tapestry of of mix of people. And I I don't like it the way the media's come out and said they're all um, trying to bring on a coup. They're all dangerous, violent rioters, and same as Trump saying they're all patriots. You know, it's it's a real mix. So if you ask me what happened, uh, I think what happened, I think Trump was irresponsible in the way he was calling it all on. And I think he certainly did tell them to be peaceful and to go home. However, I think that's it was disingenuous in the way he was calling it on in the first place. But then you've got really bad actions from big tech who have now banned Trump indefinitely from Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and if not, they, Zuckerberg said indefinitely, but at least until Joe Biden gets sworn in. So we also have this reaction from Joe Biden as well coming out saying it was a coup attempt and and... Um, pe uh, people around Biden now saying that they should stop people's ability to bank uh, if they were involved in this. They've also got uh, people being put on the no-fly list. There was a journalist in there. Uh, I was just watching this on the Rubin Report this morning, Dave Rubin. Uh, he was interviewing one of the journalists who was there was reporting he's now been put on a no-fly list and he was just trying to cover the event. So there's, there's, this whole thing is descending into chaos, societally speaking. Uh, we have... This gives ammo to the left to clamp down on things like no-fly lists and, and lack of banking and so on. So I'm I'm scared of what's happening in the US. It's like a bellwether for Australia. And I'm thinking the only way to prevent this is to fight hard on the cultural front so that when that war inevitably gets here, our we're vaccinated against it, if I can use that word. Uh, our Australian electorate needs needs to be suspicious of authoritarianism so by the time it gets here they go nah we reject that and at the moment they love authoritarianism so that's my mission right now is to is to fix the culture yeah i think you're spot on damn it how, how do you think that can be done though i mean it's it's um it seems to be 
there's a lot of division um, even in Australia at the moment and and that you know both sides just continuously pointing fingers at one another saying that uh, oh, you're an extremist well you're an extremist uh, and we're getting more and more and more polarized the center seems to be hollowed out you know in PR we used to talk about the bell curve of public opinion it's not really a bell curve anymore it's more like a ditch and you've got two extremes um, how far along are we Damien how far along are we uh, is there enough of us is my strategy going to work or is there just no center left to pursue I think we are we are much less far along the road than the United States the disconnect in the United States is getting broader and broader and the suspicion of one side against the other is getting worse and worse uh, and that you cannot, I mean, this nonsense that that was all because of Trump and now Trump's gone, that's going to disappear. Trump was never the effect, the cause of all of this. He's always been an effect of it. And it's been mm. going on since the Tea Party movement started, which was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, so it's a grassroots thing um, caused by the frustration of people with um, the establishment and where things were at. And that then grew into a very, very powerful powerful movement the democratic party have been driving division through identity politics as a means of gaining political power for decades so to point the finger at trump and say he's responsible for the division in america um when when you and you still have the democrats you know using extremely inflamed rhetoric i mean have a listen to the language that came out of joe biden's mouth yesterday oh, no. huge um, the mo taking this faux moral high ground Mm. As if you know, this is this is all the it's just still the deplorables message. We're still doing mm -hmm. the deplorables message, and they know they're doing it, and they know it's wrong, and they keep doing it, and that fuels the fire and fuels the the division. I don't know. You know, it's hard to tell with America because the media is so focused on the sensational ends of that U-shaped curve of public opinion that we don't really know what's going on in the middle. You know, I don't think we get a clear indication of what's going on in the middle. Um, so it's yet to be seen, Matt. But I hope that in Australia we start to see more people like us coming out and saying, well, hang on a minute. <clears throat> you know, I mean, I, I posted criticism of Trump's behaviour the other day and his failure to come forward and speak out, mm. and I immediately lost 25 followers. How's that tolerant? You know, that's not tolerant mm. of debate. Um, mm. If you're not fully on board with the QAnon conspiracy, and I'm going to call it out and say it, it's garbage. It's a game. It's a mm. video game. It's a worldwide uh, conspiracy video game. That's what QAnon is, and that's how it started. And if you listen to the guy who created, you'll 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 hear about it. But you know, I, I the the way that QAnon has taken off. I mean, that's a phenomenon in itself. Just the the fact that people will believe things that you put in front of them that sound plausible, without mm. any test, without any in depth sort of challenging. You know, oh, I'm joining the dots. Look at the connection here between this name and that name, or this time mm. and that time in history. And look at, look, I've joined all these dots. Well, I could come into your world, and you know, I could join a whole bunch of dots for you and connect you to Nazi Germany, probably. You know, in in seventeen steps or something. I mean, it's just garbage. So, um, you know, I'm a I'm a classical liberal. I lean right. I'm centre right. Um, but I don't like a lot of what I see on the right, and. Uh, and if we're going to sort of fight the the problem we've got here, we've got to, you know, we're going to start calling that out as well. And so I've probably just lost us both another what have five hundred uh, supporters. But there you go. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you've got to make a choice what you're going to stand for. And and I'm hoping that there's enough decent Australians left that um, don't buy into the far left and the far right. 
Well, I, I think I, there are, mate, and I and I look forward to continuing the journey and uh, the um, the culture war with you in twenty twenty one. It's been great having you on the show. Great to talk to you always. Uh, so let's uh, let's keep doing this throughout the year. Yeah, thank you for doing that, and I look forward to seeing you in Melbourne soon when you have we have you down for a live event. That'd be great. Talk soon. Yep. And that is it for the first episode for 2021 of The Other Side Australia. A little bit of an emergency episode. Sorry about the uh, lower sound quality on today's show. Uh, that's because I'm recording not in my usual studio, but just out on the road uh, in Australia's Gold Coast. And our first proper episode will be up at the usual time, which is Friday morning, Friday morning, uh, the 15th of January, this coming Friday. We'll see you then with uh, episode one of The Other Side Australia for 2021. One, and we'll be chatting to Ray Rudowski, our uh, North America expert, and we'll also uh, have Ellie Melly on the show back with us, Alexandra Marshall, our regular. So, see you then, Friday morning. <laughs>